0: Welcome to the Podcast of Ideas. I'm Rob Lyons. In this edition, I talk to Alistair Donald about Britain's housing crisis. John Holbrook explains why he'd like to repeal the Human Rights Act and Fiona McEwan talks us through the latest findings in autism research. But first, the news. As ever, I've corralled various members of the Institute's staff to talk about news items that have caught their eye in the past couple of weeks. First up is David Badden. David, what have you got for us?
1: Well, this week I'm interested in Cambridge Conservative parliamentary candidate, Jamali Fernando, who faced a petition calling her to stand down after announcing that mentally ill people should be forced to wear coloured wristbands. Of course, when you actually look at the story, Fernando was asked in a hustings about how to improve police treatment of mentally ill people. She replied that in her professional experience as a barrister, that a possible solution would be to mirror the use of medical bracelets by other sufferers of non-visible illness, or in fact, the green card system promoted by the National Autistic Society. Now, the policy, while well-meaning, probably has some very obvious flaws around patient confidentiality, and is perhaps a crude solution to a difficult issue. But the reaction to this off-the-cuff response was telling reported by the press and blogosphere as a draconian nazi-like proposal which would inevitably lead to an outbreak of violence against the mentally ill even at the meeting the incumbent lib dem mp julian huppert said that he was shocked by the comments and noted that a wristband saying i am depressed is not going to help now the reaction is deeply disingenuous partly it's the knee-jerk reaction to an aspiring politician daring to speak openly and freely on a topic that has not often been discussed, and instead of being intellectually challenged as being wrong, is instead told, you can't say that. But it's also another troubling example of how a difficult issue around mental health is derailed and devalued by those who claim to speak in its name. Mr Huppert surely knows that this is not an issue which primarily affects those who are depressed, but those who are frightened, disorientated, possibly violent and, importantly, not a sound mind, people with serious psychiatric disorders, when they encounter ill-equipped and ill-prepared justice system, which could potentially do them a great deal of harm. Now, Fernando may have not had the right answer, but she did a service to public debate by raising an honest question on a vital issue. She certainly does not deserve to be pilloried for it. If we had more of that in this election, it would certainly be a lot more interesting and inspiring. Thank you very
0: much, David. The story I'm picking up on is the fact that a very major issue hasn't been mentioned at all in this election campaign, which is climate change. It is apparently the biggest threat to human existence. Yet, as one Guardian writer noted this week, it doesn't even make the top 10 in any poll of voters' concerns. There is some debate around the fringes of the issue. For example, the Tories would rein in subsidies for wind farms and give locals a veto over building them, which obviously plays to the concerns of many of their rural supporters. But of the bigger parties, only UKIP has taken a distinctive stance, promising to repeal the Climate Change Act and scrap the Department for Energy and Climate Change. But no one ever wants to talk to a UKIP about the environment, and the issue is otherwise absent. I think there are two main reasons for this. First, because there is unanimity about the issue. As Ben Pyle pointed out in his contribution to our Repeal One Law debate this week, The Climate Change Act ended up promising ludicrous cuts in carbon emissions because the big parties were outbidding each other on who was taking the issue most seriously, which does illustrate a rather serious problem. The Climate Change Act is a huge commitment with major consequences in terms of our standard of living, yet we basically have no choice at this election unless we prepare to vote for UKIP. What's the point of voting if it makes no difference to such major laws? Secondly, I think it reveals just what an elite concern the environment is. I don't think it's any surprise that the people most likely to raise such concerns are already comfortably off. They have the luxury of not having to worry about such trifles as material wealth, and so can bang on about how we all have to make sacrifices for the planet. That said, a survey conducted for travel website TravelZoo, which was published this week, even claimed that Green Party voters were the most likely to choose long-haul flights over short-haul flights – we can only hope that they were offsetting their carbon emissions. Meanwhile, most voters are more concerned about living standards, health, education and so on. Perhaps our politicians will stop and think whether they've got their priorities right when it comes to eco laws. But I doubt it. Uh, next up we have Rossa Monogue. Uh, what story have you picked up on, Rossa?
2: Well... News of the latest tragedy to befall migrants making the crossing from North Africa to Europe was particularly troubling this week, with an overcrowded boat capsizing with the loss of between three and 400 lives off the Italian island of Lampedusa. Last year, over 3,500 people died making such crossings during the spring and summer, giving rise to what some commentators have called drowning season. The blame for the deaths has been laid variously at the feet of greedy human traffickers, those who offer migrants employment when they arrive in Europe, and even rescue operations which pick up migrants on stricken craft, with the UK government taking the extraordinarily callous move of withdrawing the Royal Navy from participating in any rescue attempts last year on the grounds that such operations allegedly embolden people to attempt the crossing. But ultimately, what's really responsible for these deaths are the EU's liberal immigration policies, which force people who are in search of a better life to undertake such extraordinary risks. The numbers of people attempting the crossing has risen sharply in recent years due to migrants fleeing the Syrian civil war, the rise of ISIS, and the almost complete collapse of anything resembling a Libyan state. All crises that the EU member states that now refuse these people entry played no small part in creating. There's a perception that the EU is very pro immigration because it allows free movement between member states and the fact that it defines itself in opposition to right wing populist parties like UKIP and Front National. But this is simply not true. The EU's draconian immigration policies have, in fact, created a new fortress in Europe, and people are dying as a result.
0: And finally, Jeff Kidder is here with some news from our network of salons. I'm just back from the Dublin Salon yesterday
3: evening, discussing Big Data, Big Boon or Big Brother. The Salons are a group of debating organisations around the UK and now also in Ireland, which are inspired by the Institute of Ideas and discuss a whole wide range of different issues. In the UK at the moment, many of them are discussing issues in relation to the general election. The one in Dublin yesterday on Big Data was discussing, is there a problem with the fact that People are amassing large amounts of data in a medical world, in issues to do with science, health and in other areas, and maybe getting lost in the data, using the data that's gathered to try and predict outcomes and not having people enough making their own judgments and saying we have this data, what policy outcomes should come out of it, people being too directly led by the data. Or, or maybe that's not the case. But there was an interesting discussion around that. And also around issues of nudge, whereby people are saying, well, this is a desirable policy outcome. We've done a lot of data research, maybe you we implement these policies or those policies, people won't realise what's happening, but we might be able to change their behaviour in subtle ways. And I think there was a general assessment at the meeting that that's quite an insidious way of going about things. But there were a whole wide range of debates on that. Anyway, it was a a lively discussion in a nice venue with good people, and we all went to the pub afterwards and and carried on the discussion over a pint. So uh, it, it was a good start. And the next debate's already planned for July.
0: Brilliant. Well, that's, uh, that's very good news and good news for the people of Dublin. Thank you very much, Jeff Killer. One of the biggest issues facing people in the UK at the moment is the cost of housing. The major parties have set out their stall on the issue. The Conservatives promised 200,000 homes for first-time buyers under 40 with a 20% discount and they want to extend the Help to Buy scheme. Labour says it would increase the rate of building to 200,000 homes per year and legislate for three-year tenancies with a ceiling on rents. The Liberal Democrats would trump that with 300,000 homes per year and create 10 new garden cities. UKIP wants to protect the Greenbelt and, not surprisingly, prioritise housing for local people. But haven't we been here before? The last Labour government promised to accelerate house building but couldn't live up to its promises. The current coalition government has fared even worse with recent figures showing a fall in the already low number of housing starts. To discuss the issue, I'm joined by Alistair Donald, Associate Director at the Future Cities Project, which takes a critical look at issues relating to the city and society. So, first of all, I guess we should look at the scale of the problem. How much does a house cost these days compared to average incomes and why have prices risen so much?
4: Well obviously statisticians are very adept at cutting the figures in different ways but if we stick with some ONS statistics then the average house price today is around about £266,000 whereas average household income is somewhere just over £40,000 so obviously a huge difference between what we earn and and what we pay for our housing. I think though a bit of context is, is useful in these things so if you look at house price increases over the years then if you go back to about 1991 and strip out inflation so look at it at today's prices then it was about £119,000 for a house in 1991 whereas today we're somewhere around about 266000 as I said so more than doubled in real term over the past 25 years or so and I think in many ways the most important thing is, is the shift in the ratio of prices to average earnings and when you look at that if you go back over a course of about half a century it was around about two and a half times your income in 1969 whereas today uh, they hover around about five times your income. So again, a, a huge increase. And why have they gone up so much, do you think? Uh, well, a simple answer, I suppose, would be we don't build so many houses. Again, if you take a historical perspective, we regularly built around about 400,000 homes in the late 60s, whereas you get to 2013, it's, it's around about 140,000. So you're know, building at about the third of the rate
0: why is that? Why are we building so few houses? After all, in any other market, especially with so much money flying around as there is in the housing market, we expect producers to make more to meet the demand, yet that doesn't seem to happen in housing.
4: Well, I, th- I think you know, there's, there's a number of reasons for that, but I think the, the main one is probably a lack of political ambition, a lack of uh, means to overcome some of the blockages on, on house building. And indeed, you know, in many ways, I'd say the political outlook today reinforces some of the problems. If you go back again and, and kind of look at how things operated in the past, then the, the whole emphasis was very much on development. Uh, there was an expansionist mindset in planning and in society more generally, I think, partly driven by expanding economy, but also by ideas about cities. Uh, urban ideas were, were very much expansionist. Whereas you get to the 1970s, things start to slow down economically, and we start to build less. But I think the, the thing for for now is is a, the much more recent development since the 1990s, is, is the influence of environmental ideas and sustainability ideas, which has very much transformed house building from something that was, you know, a solution to what people needed, into a problem in, in many ways. You know, housing eats up resources. It, uh, if you build them in the wrong place, it encourages people to travel. You know, the mindset associated with housing these days has become much more negative.
0: And one of the, one of the issues that comes up quite a lot is the green belt. And obviously that that plays to a certain environmental outlook as well, which conjures up images of pretty gardens and a sanctuary from city life. What is the green belt, and why does its existence matter in relation to this debate? Yeah, I mean I think you're
4: right. I mean the the remarkable thing when you think about development is it only actually takes up about ten percent of of the space in England. So ninety percent is actually unbuilt, and that you know that ten percent includes urban. Uh, suburban and uh, exurbs, the sort of more scattered forms of, of development outside cities. So 90% unbuilt and often protected in, in some way or another, sometimes for very good reasons, national parks and areas of outstanding national beauty, but also a lot of other protections as well. Things like environmental stewardship schemes uh, have a huge influence over what can be built. And the green belt is is part of, of those restrictions. Now, the green belt you know very simply is 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 a policy of putting a a belt around a city to stop it expanding any further than the limit that's been prescribed you know it takes up 13% of the land these days which is actually ironically more than we've we've built on i mean it dates from the 1930s when city you know new forms of mobility cars were starting to come about so it gave us the capacity to live outside cities live away from where we worked so landowners and patrician planners were, were very keen to protect the land and contain people within cities
0: so that's sort of the roots of them so what could we be doing to increase this supply of housing well, we talked about the green belt but is it for example time to start building tower blocks now do we need to intensify the sort of development of cities i mean what what, what is the way forward well, I
4: I don't think there's any one way forward. It would be nice to think that we could uh, have the confidence to expand out into the green belt. I mean, I I think it's a tragedy that uh, we limit ourselves to cities because we've got the, you know, the capacity in modern days to to travel and and to to get about much more easily if 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 that's what we want to do. I mean, obviously, the one of the key planning policies just now is to stop people travelling. So so that kind of Provides a, a barrier to that, so that that would be one solution. Tower blocks are another solution. It would be good, I think, if if we built up imaginatively as well as outwards. But there's again there's, there's kind of problems associated with that these days. Um, under the current regulations, there's there's nothing on space standards. Possibly the most useful regulation there could be. So dense developments tend to be very small, pokey, flat, not particularly what people want. So if we if we were prepared to think more imaginatively, think more ambitiously we could uh, I think build amazing towers as, as well as building outwards and you know the other thing about towers is this this campaign's just now against towers so in, in, in London the Observer has been running a campaign for the past year against building new towers so there's kind of almost this competitive arena of people wanting to stop development for different reasons, some for environmental and energy reasons to constrain development to dense cities, others because they, they object to to the, the disruption that the building process causes.
0: So, just to, to carry on with that, because you, you talked earlier about the building campaigns of the the fifties and sixties, post war, we needed a lot of new housing, and, and a lot of new housing got built. So, is it just risk aversion that's going on here? I mean, what what, what is stopping us from from getting on with things? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it
4: is partly risk aversion. It, we have ground to a halt almost in the development process over the past twenty years. Or 30 years. I mean, it's quite interesting I think this week, the discussion on the return of right to buy this time with housing associations rather than council houses, which was introduced in the early 1980s by the Tories It's kind of a, I suppose, a policy that, that uh, makes you question what the Tories uh, think they're doing I mean, it's, it's certainly not a solution to the housing problem but I think it's, uh, interestingly it's, it's a reminder of what started to happen in the 1980s with the right to buy scheme which was, rather than de- Development itself being the dynamic that drove uh, what we were doing. A much more technical form of looking at house building came in. So questions of ownership, who, who owned housing, became more important than the actual building of them. And that was very much continued, I think, through the, the new labour period. You know, there was all these initiatives, right to buy affordable homes, uh, shared ownership planning gain mechanisms over how much developers had to provide within their development for social housing. So lots of very technical measures that actually avoided the
0: very real question of building houses. Um, Now, since you're here, I I know you have an event coming up on the 29th of April called Plaza Mania. Who is public space for and why? What's the thinking behind that discussion?
4: Yeah, well, the Plaza Mania discussion is is, uh, the second in a series of Salon debates by the future city Salon something that we set up with a a network of young architects and students wanting more discussion and debate about the architectural future. So... Unlike, I suppose, uh, housing, which has, has been wiped out of any genuine sort of political discussion in this election campaign, uh, the focus has often turned to much more local forms of politics, and public space is one of the main discussions within local politics. Uh, local authorities have ever trying to work out how to provide more public space. Their strategies and plans are full of all these I- ideas about public space, and what we wanted to do was to to question why that was. Because if you go back and think about public space in the past. And there did seem a reasonably clear idea about why you were doing it. You know, in, in the early 20th century, we wanted more open public space because cities were crowded and, and we, you know, we wanted freer spaces uh, that we could enjoy. Whereas these days, there's lots of desire to build public space, but I think less idea of why we want to build it, other than these, these ideas attached to, I, I suppose, social outcomes. The idea that public space creates communities or if it's designed in a certain way, it will make people behave in a way that's healthy or uh, more community-minded or it'll create less opportunities for antisocial behaviour. So we just wanted to question some of those ambitions behind public space, indeed to ask what is and what should be the real ambition for public space.
0: Okay. well, you can find out more about that event and the rest of what the Future Cities Project gets up to uh, by visiting their website, which is futurecities.org.uk. Alistair Donald, thank you very much. Thank you. During the election campaign, the political parties have been telling us what policies they would implement if they were elected. But as reported earlier this week, the coalition government that has just left office created a thousand new laws, from the sweeping and illiberal, like the Counter-Terrorism and Security Act, to legislating to make it illegal to jump into the River Thames without permission, So at the Institute of Ideas, we thought it would be more interesting to take a step back and consider the laws and policies that should get the chop. So we've been running a debate on our website, instituteofideas.com, and inviting a range of people to tell us which law they would really like to see the back of. One of the first to contribute was Barrister John Holbrook, who nominated the Human Rights Act as the one law he thinks should go into the legislative bin. And I'm very glad to say John is with me here to explain why, First of all, what is the Human Rights Act? When was it introduced and what does it do? The Human Rights Act, it was part of the incoming
5: Labour government's commitment to constitutional reform. So they were elected in 1997 and they passed the Human Rights Act in 1998. It then came into force in the year 2000. So the Human Rights has now been with us as active legislation for about 15 years. What it essentially does is it brings the European Convention of Human Rights into UK domestic law. So the convention, which is overseen by the court in Strasbourg, is a convention which supposedly has various rights, human rights, um, such as the right to respect for family and private life. And these are rights which, under the Human Rights Act, can now be argued over directly in a UK court. So for several decades it had been the case that if someone had a grievance about human rights... They could argue that grievance out in the Strasbourg Court, but they couldn't argue it out in English courts because um, it wasn't law that was directly enforceable in the UK. So that all changed under the Human Rights Act of 1998, and it essentially, as the Labour Party's white paper said, it was about bringing rights home. The idea was you could get these remedies under the Human Rights Act in the UK courts without having to go off to Strasbourg.
0: But since we have signed the European Convention decades ago and we are bound by it, doesn't this at least speed things up for people who want relief through the Convention? Isn't it a good thing? Isn't justice delayed, justice denied?
5: Well, I'm all in favour of speedy justice, but I think the the fundamental problem with the Human Rights Act is that we're not really talking about justice here. What we are fundamentally talking about is policy, and there's, there's a big difference. The L- laws should be concerned only with justice, whereas politicians should be concerned with, with policy. Um, I, I think that the fundamental problem with the Human Rights Act is that each of those articles that I mentioned, such as, for example, the right to respect for family and private life, it, it's essentially enshrining a very broad principle And the question is, how do you apply that particularly broad principle to any particular problem that may arise? And what the Human Rights Act does is that it enables judges to decide how that particularly broad principle should be applied. And in doing that, they are essentially making policy or they are challenging legislation that has been passed by Parliament. So, for example, they have the right to say that a particular law passed by Parliament is not compatible with a article in the European Convention. And I- I- in doing that, they are really expressing their opinions on, on issues of policy. So I don't see it as being so much about justice. On the contrary, I think it's taking law away from its proper function and channelling law into an area where it shouldn't go, which is essentially about the making of policy.
0: We, we also know that, you know, yeah politicians and the parliamentary process is pretty flawed so isn't it a reasonable thing for somebody outside of parliament to take a step back and say well hold on a second that particular law you've just passed doesn't fit in with the broader principles that we've already established so isn't it reasonable for judges to, to provide that kind of check on what parliament is passing
5: well I, I, I mean that that's the argument that's often put in favor of the human rights act but you see my my question there is to say Why is it that you want judges to be overseers of policy which has been made and passed in Parliament? There is something fundamentally different between law and policy. If you think about laws, um, then when a person goes to court, they argue not what is right or what is wrong, what is desirable, what sort of a society do they want – they argue on the basis of what the law allows, and that invariably means looking at previously decided judicial decisions, precedents, as we call them. So when you go to court and you argue about what should be a, a legal issue, the court never is never there with a blank sheet of paper on which it um, merely decides what is right or wrong. It's constrained by these legal issues, and that, that, in, in my opinion, can lead to some rather absurd consequences because I I think, for example, the idea that prisoners um, should have the right to vote is an example of how judges, by expanding the law um, one precedent after another, has ended up in a rather ludicrous situation where we are told by the Strasbourg court that um, prisoners must have a right to vote, or at least that the blanket ban that we have on this country is unlawful. And it seems to me that, that, that that's not a legal process. That that's, That is fundamentally an issue of policy which should be determined by Parliament um, engaging with the people, not by judges engaging with legal submissions, as we called them, made by lawyers.
0: So what do you think about human rights more generally? Because I think that post-Second World War they were seen as a very valuable step forward in sort of defending broader individual freedoms. Do you think that that's worked out as its proponents suggest, or do you think there is a problem with human rights fundamentally? Yes, I think there's a fundamental problem with human rights. A lot
5: of people say, uh, looking at, say, the American Constitution, that uh, surely rights are a good thing. But there's something fundamentally different between the kind of rights we have, which were set up in the wake of the Second World War, and those rights which are enshrined, in the American Bill of Rights, which, of course, was drafted in the tail end of the 18th century. It seems to me, and I think, for example, the, the American Bill of Rights is a good illustration of this, that with the, the First Amendment saying that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. And, in other words, what that American Constitution was about doing was restricting the ambit and reach of the state – and seeking to empower individuals, such as with the right of free speech, free assembly, and so on. Whereas if you look at um, the European Convention of Human Rights, it actually adopts a very different approach. It it doesn't have anything equivalent to the uh, First Amendment. It doesn't restrict the power of the state. In fact, invariably, what decisions under the human rights end up doing is expanding the reach of the state usually by ensuring that there is some kind of judicial oversight. I think a very good example of this is the control orders that we have in this country, which have been challenged under human rights legislation, but human rights legislation has said control orders are okay; they are compatible with the European Convention. And yet, if you think about it, what a control order is, is a form of house arrest. It means constraining people to live in their homes when they have not been charged or convicted of anything. Now, if ever anything was going to be a breach of a fundamental right, it ought to be that. But that is, so the judges in the UK and Strasbourg have told us, that is all compatible with the European Convention. What you can do with a control order is challenge some of the detail of it. So the controlee can say, oh, I ought to be given a little more freedom to go to the gym or I ought to be housed closer to my family, that sort of thing. Uh, and so that's typical of what you get under the Convention. You you get micromanagement of detail, but the broad principles, which are, for example, enshrined in the American Constitution, which are about ensuring liberty and restricting the power of the state, simply aren't there under human rights laws.
0: So, So what would you do? Would you simply just delete the Human Rights Act... Would you replace it with some other kind of bill of rights, more in keeping with the American version, um, or or what? I think we have to accept that human rights legislation
5: is very much a response to a particular problem. That the, the problem can be broadly summed up as being that of the democratic deficit. This idea that parliamentarians can't be trusted, they don't make good decisions, all, all of which may be true. But I think the problem with human rights laws is that it merely accommodates to that. It says. Or rather than getting our parliamentarians to, to pass good laws or to have an honest and open debate with us, let's shunt all these issues off into the courts where there's even less democratic scrutiny of what's happening. So I would fundamentally challenge the rights discourse, this idea that we need rights, because whenever you challenge a human rights advocate as to why they think human rights are so important, they invariably... Say implicitly if not explicitly that they do not trust the people. They think that the majority will take advantage of a minority, that the rich will tread on the poor or that the strong will oppress the weak. And it, it, it seems to me that if you accept that very principle or that very idea then you've given up on the whole idea of democracy. And I, I'm not prepared to give up on the idea of democracy. I think democracy is the only way forward. And if we challenge the rights-based culture by repealing the Human Rights Act, pulling out of the European Convention and not replacing it with anything, then we would be making a very powerful statement that actually we trust the people to engage with our politicians and to have an honest debate about the sort of society we want to live in. So in the name of democracy, that would be my way forward.
0: John Holbrook, thank you very much. Uh, John is speaking at an event, Do Judges Have Too Much Power? organised by the Institute of Ideas as part of the City of London Festival on the 23rd of June at the Central Criminal Court, or the Old Bailey as it's usually known. You can find out more details on our State of the Nation page on the website, which lists all our pre- and post-election events. That's instituteofideas.com forward slash nation. The problem of autism has been one of the most high-profile and anguished health discussions over recent years. There's also been alarm over an apparent increase in autism rates. For example, in March 2012, the US Centre for Disease Control found that 1 in 88 children aged 8 years had been diagnosed as autistic in or prior to 2008. This represented a 78% increase from the estimate in 2004. This has led to numerous attempts to find some new cause that could explain such a rise, most notably the claim by Andrew Wakefield that autism was caused by the MMR vaccine, a claim that is now utterly discredited, as is Dr Wakefield. Yet a study published in March in JAMA Psychiatry suggests that autism is largely inherited. If that's the case, what does it mean for claims of a new environmental cause for autism? Does it indicate that rising autism rates may be a consequence of changes in diagnosis or categorisation? I'm joined by one of the authors of the report, Dr Fiona McEwen, from the Institute of Psychiatry in London. So Fiona, just to start with basics, what is autism?
6: Oh, well, autism is a neurodevelopmental disorder that's characterised by impairments in social interaction and social communication and by patterns of repetitive and stereotyped behaviour and restricted interests. It's a lifelong condition, it manifests in the early years of life, but it's not always recognised in very early development. In some children, especially in those who have maybe who have more subtle difficulties, it's not necessarily obvious until they're in slightly more demanding situations like starting nursery or starting school, or sometimes even later on in life when they leave school. But even in those cases, it's, it's apparent with hindsight that um, there was usually some abnormalities early in development. So we now talk about autism spectrum disorder. Um, it's recognised as a really wide range of manifestations. So it will range from people who are really severely impaired through to people who have quite subtle difficulties. And also from people who have severe co-occurring learning disability, um, some of whom might have no speech, um, through to those who, who could have a much higher than average IQ. How
0: did you go about investigating the problem?
6: So we looked at children with autism in a a large population register of twins, the Twins Early Development Study, which is also known as TEDS. The parents of all the twins born in England and Wales from 1994 to 1996 were invited to join the study and over 10,000 families have been actively involved over the years. Nearly 9,000 families were screened for the presence of autism. So there was different ways of doing that. Parents filled in um, screening questionnaires when the children about eight years old. And they were also asked about autism, about whether there was concerns that a child might have autism, uh, during telephone interviews at other points. And some families spontaneously disclosed to the study that one of their children had been diagnosed. So we identified about 400 families where a child might have autism. We then completed more in-depth telephone interviews and we narrowed it down to just over 200 families where we thought one of the children may well have autism. Our research team then went out all around the country and visited the families. So they visited 129 families at home and carried out face-to-face assessments with each twin. The twins were around 13 years old at that point. Parents were also asked about each twin's early development so they uh, underwent quite extensive interviews where they were asked about the child's development from the very early stages right through to their current behaviour. And the assessments that we use are widely considered to be gold standard assessments um, that are used in diagnosing autism. So on the basis of those assessments, the research team, which included uh, experienced child psychiatrists, then classified each child. So they could be classified as having an autism spectrum disorder. They could be classified as having high levels of autistic traits that fell short of a formal diagnosis of, of autism, which is sometimes called the broader spectrum, or some of them are classified as being unaffected at that stage. So we then carried out a form of statistical modelling that enabled us to estimate to what extent the the risk of having autism was due to genetic or environmental factors. So we, we use the twin method to, to look at this. Uh, twins and a pair can be alike because they share the same genes, um, but also because they grow up in the same environment. So identical twins share all their DNA with each other, and they also share many aspects of the same environment. Obviously, they're in the same home, same neighbourhoods, you know, experience a lot of the same things. Non-identical twins, uh, they're like normal brothers and sisters, so they share about 50% of the DNA, but they also share much of the same environment. So if something's under genetic influence, we would expect identical twins to be much more similar to each other than non-identical twins. The other thing we did in our models, we also looked at autistic traits as are distributed throughout the whole population. So we can measure autistic traits in typical people and find that people have different scores, um, from being very socially skilled at one end of the spectrum to having significant difficulties with, with social communication at the other end. And we wanted to see how these traits might relate to diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder.
0: Okay, so what did you find?
6: Uh, We found that genetic factors played a very large role in the risk of having autism. We estimated the genetic factors to be responsible for about 95% of the risk. Um, So because there's always some uncertainty in the models, the true value could be between 74 and 98%. There was very little evidence that environmental factors that are common to both twins, that's that's factors that make twins and a pair more similar to each other, that they played any role at all. Um, But there was some evidence that environmental factors that are unique to each twin, so uh, factors that make twins different from each other, that they played some small role. The other main finding is that autistic traits in the population seem to be influenced by largely the same genetic factors that influence the risk of having a diagnosis of autism. So it seems to be the case that autistic traits are distributed throughout the whole population and that people with autism are just at the extreme end of that distribution It's been recognised for a while that uh, family members of people with autism often have similar though less severe difficulties and our results support the idea that it's a genetic liability to autism which might manifest as subclinical autistic traits or as full-blown autism in different members of the same family. Um, So there's a couple of caveats I should add. The models don't distinguish true environmental effects from measurement error so it's hard to say uh, for certain how much of each is playing a role. It's also the case that interactions between genetic risk and environmental factors are hard to detect using this method, so we can't rule out that environmental factors might have an influence in some genetically at-risk individuals.
0: But you're fairly confident, I think, g- genetics is the, the major factor here. I think. So what exactly does it mean to say that something is X percent inherited?
6: Um, well, it's a population-level statistic, so it means that across a population, at a sp- specific point in time, at you know, the point in time that you've measured it, the variability between different individuals in the population is due to a certain combination of genetic and environmental factors. It doesn't necessarily tell us about what's going on in any one individual, but it rather it summarises across the population. So in this case we can sort of see that the percentage of risk of having autism across the population is around 95% due to genetic factors.
0: So that's a very substantial finding. So what does that mean in the context of rising rates of autism? I mean, Because there's clearly more diagnoses going on. So does that mean that doctors are becoming more aware of it and diagnosing it more often? Or is this to do with categories? So the goalposts moved in terms of when somebody's descri- described as autistic or on this spectrum. Has, has that changed in the past few years?
6: There's been a number of changes that might account for it. and At the moment, it's not entirely clear to what you know to what extent different factors have played a a role in this apparent increase so there have been changes in the diagnostic criteria so when autism was first recognized it was a sort of fairly narrowly defined autism that we were talking about whereas in more recent years the the definition has included to to be the autism spectrum so um children who might not meet the, the criteria for sort of classic autistic disorder but have sort of an atypical manifestation would now ca- fall under the, the the category of autism spectrum disorder and therefore would be included in these figures. There have been changes to the, the diagnostic criteria that, that it, when people have gone back and empirically reviewed cases diagnosed and using sort of previous criteria they can see that more cases would now be diagnosed. So for example the the DSM-3, the DSM is the the manual that um, contains the criteria for different disorders. When there was a move from DSM-3 to DSM-4, it seems that that probably more cases were included that wouldn't have been previously diagnosed. So um, in one study, they took cases that had been assessed before using DSM-3 criteria, went back and reviewed them again a number of years later using DSM-4 criteria and found that about 60% of those who didn't previously get a diagnosis would then get a diagnosis under the the new criteria. So that's almost certainly played some role. There's obviously been an increase in recognition of autism as well, so uh, again, Cases that wouldn't have perhaps been recognised in the past um, that would have been uh, diagnosed as having a a learning disability or cases, for example, in children who have something like a genetic syndrome whereas previously they would have just perhaps got got a diagnosis of that particular syndrome it's now increasingly recognised that those children might additionally have autism spectrum disorder and that will be given as an additional diagnosis. So there's lots of factors that have probably resulted in an increase in those figures. Right.
0: So again, going back to the numbers you gave earlier on, if there is such a high genetic component to autism, I mean, does that mean that the situation is hopeless for parents who find that their children have been diagnosed in this way? Is is there any treatment that's going to be available for them?
6: Yeah, it, it's certainly not hopeless because um, it's a developmental disorder and our, our nervous systems are incredibly plastic. We know that early behavioural interventions do help in, in many cases and the, the earlier a child is diagnosed and the earlier an intervention starts, the better. Sometimes that's been limited by the fact that diagnosis is, doesn't always happen until children are a little bit older. So there's studies uh, more recently are looking at trying to detect at-risk infants. So one way of doing that is looking at the younger siblings of children who've already got a diagnosis, because we know that they're at increased risk of having autism as well, and studying them in early development and looking at what happens if we start interventions very, very early in development before children would typically have a diagnosis. So there's lots of ongoing research in this area, but it's certainly not hopeless, and, and some of the behavioural in- interventions do show quite promising results.
0: Okay, thank you very much for that, Fiona McEwen. <laughs> thank you for listening to this edition of the Podcast of Ideas. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts or subscribe to them, then visit our website, instituteofideas.com forward slash podcast.